From the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. Today, guest interviewer Nicole Kraft talks to Emmy Award-winning journalist and author of Muzzled, The Assault on Honest Debate, Juan Williams. But first, Doug Dangler talks to Elizabeth Gorin, a New York City-based therapist who counseled firefighters after September 11, 2001, and has written about the experience in her new book, Beyond the Reach of Ladders, My Story as a Therapist Forging Bonds with Firefighters in the Aftermath of 9-11. So welcome to Writer's Talk. Thank you. Tell me about the writing of this book. How, uh, how long did it take? Uh, when did you start? What prompted you to start? Well, this book actually was almost 10 years in the making. I was really motivated by several things. Initially, I was just emotionally compelled to get down and print what was in this inconceivable reality I found myself in the middle of. America being brought down and 3,000 people literally disappearing in a matter of minutes. And I started really trying to record what I saw, what I heard in my own reactions, kind of keeping a psychologist's journal. I felt like I'd become a witness to history unfolding. And I felt a moral compunction, actually, for the sake of those who died and the people who went through it, because I know as a psychologist how memory fades and distorts. So I actually wrote this as close to the events everything that's described from 2001 all the way through to the present. And at the beginning of the book, you talk about needing to change uh, and create composite characters, um, obviously because you need to come to um, protect identities, identifications, uh, things like that for the uh, people involved. And I'd like to know about that kind of writing where you created the composite characters. You go from maybe in a journal where you're changing the identity, but hewing fairly close to the, uh, the description of the person to something like this, where you're creating more of a, a more difficult character to identify, but something that you felt was more accurate uh, in terms of the felt experience? Yes. Well, I tried to, with each of the characters to keep as accurate as possible. And I would keep notes after my interactions with them in the firehouse within days and then following firefighters in their therapy sessions in 2005, I would keep detailed notes. When I created the characters, um, actually the, the composites, I should clarify, the composites are largely the firefighters in the firehouse so that that particular firehouse and the individual firefighters would not be recognizable. But what I tried to do in these composites is capture the truth, things that they said that I knew were representative of so many of the firefighters. The two firemen who I follow in therapy gave their permission for me to use the material. They actually felt strongly they wanted to get their story out. And they read the material, they gave their permission. Anything they were uncomfortable with, I deleted. And then what I did with those men was to change any factual 
information so that they would not be recognizable to anyone but themselves. And what was your experience as the writer doing that? Uh, you're, I think, used to writing in psychology journals, and this is a different kind of uh, writing where your audience you probably thought of as different, I'm guessing, than for the journals. What was that experience like for you writing this book with a, a different viewpoint in mind, I, I guess is what I'm getting at. Yes, I actually found it extraordinarily refreshing. I had been writing for professional journals for 30 years, and I found the writing after a period of time rather dry. I was trying to bring it to life. But trying to write for a general audience in some ways was very much like speaking to my patients. It's trying to bring ideas to life, but trying to talk in a way, refer to issues, psychological issues, but with, you know, normal language. And the, I think the, the key with this kind of writing that I found as a challenge was finding the right distance from it. Uh, again, in professional writing, and sometimes the more abstruse you are, the more you're seen as smart. Uh, here, I was trying to simplify the writing, find a distance that was very personal, but the one that wasn't where I was so lost in it, it was kind of narcissistic and didn't, wouldn't speak to others, but not being so distant that it lost the power of the general emotional truth. What were your techniques for finding the right distance, as you refer to it? What did you do in the writing to help you create that distance? Well, first, uh, I, I would just write down my everything I could remember, and I would try to remember both what I was seeing, what the people were saying, what I was observing, and my own reactions. And then that's where editing and draft after draft after draft evolved. One of the things that I learned from this is to not be afraid of editing. You said that um, you learned not to be afraid of writing. What else sort of did you learn through the process of, of writing this book? And maybe while you're doing that, if you want to talk a little bit about the the characters that you created, Lieutenant Darby, Saul, um, out of the composite characters in the ways that they taught you about writing? Well, it, in, in actually trying to write about these men, the fascinating thing I found is that through creating them as characters, I actually developed a much deeper psychological understanding of them than I had before not writing, just working with them as therapists. For example, the character Steve Holland, Lieutenant Holland, who I had met in the firehouse, when he came to work with me, I found him to be a rather stiff man, and I wasn't really seeing him as very emotionally connected. And as I wrote out therapy sessions, in the process of the writing, I realized he actually was very involved, and I became much more aware of some of my own defenses and what I was not aware of in the session. So it became very useful in the therapy. So you've got people like Lieutenant Hall and Lieutenant Darby and uh, the other characters. 
How did their stories or which one of their stories maybe has stayed with you the longest and stands as the example when you're talking to people about the book and you say, let me tell you about this particular person to illustrate what the book is about? Well, when I think of the characters in the book, I would like to say, first of all, that a few of them stand out. The The characters in the firehouse who are minor characters, um, there are 50 men in a firehouse, and I actually picked about four or five to write about, and one of them was Danny, the probie, another one was Phil, who was the kind of my knots instructor, the cook in the firehouse, he played Santa, and a third was William, the hero, who was the man who dared to break rank while they were standing in the lobby of the Trade Center and because they had not called May Day and said, we have to get out of here. Because he said that, the men followed, and only the men who left without May Day did manage to survive. Those who stayed in the lobby waiting for the call, of course, uh, died. Those characters stayed with me the most. They feel so important because two of them have already died. And I believe that they died in part from stress related to 9-11. One man died off the job um, of a heart attack. And William, who the men in the firehouse considered their hero, they considered the men who died and this one man who said, we've got to get out of here, their hero, even though we all considered them all heroes. And he developed a cancer which was related to toxic exposure from working at Ground Zero. So to me, these men, I want to immortalize them. You know, you mentioned the, they had other, the firefighters had people they considered heroes, but a lot of them, <clears throat> excuse me, went through a difficult time when they, uh, what you wrote about was the heroes to zeros phenomenon, where they felt like the public was going to find out unflattering things about them, say, and start uh, turning against them. Can you say a little bit about how you worked with them and then the writing about that? Well, the, their very strong feelings about going from heroes to zeros, as they put it, which turned out to be sadly very true, was probably my strongest motivation at the time to write about, to write the story of this firehouse and these men. I had actually was writing and I had, uh, from my work in the initial relief effort, I had was really down there the very first day. And then I worked with families of the missing and relief workers. And I had made a record of that. But as I, a few months later, began working in a firehouse that lost several men, I saw that these men, they had become a kind of pinup calendar people. They were plastic figures. I wanted to bring them to life. And they felt they wanted their story to be told. They felt that they had kind of been co-opted by a society that was, in a way, using them as heroes when they wanted comfort. And then when they wanted to get past things and forget about 9-11, they would lose interest in them. And of course, much of that has happened. I mean, the fire department over the last several years, has had to fight for resources. They've closed firehouses. So they feel that they're right back where they were before. 
which is being kind of considered a pain in the neck and they're wanting, you know, to crowding the streets and wanting their pensions. And the people forget too easily the fact that we rely on them every single day, that they're kind of invisible heroes that we just assume are there if we need them. And so I really wanted to tell their story for them. They said they wanted to get the word out. And that sounds like a very difficult uh, road to walk as as the therapist, because on one hand, you want to remain, um, as you say, finding having found the right distance in the writing, but also the finding the right distance as a therapist so that you're trying to remain neutral. But that sounds like it's very difficult uh, because you're writing for these people, uh, for the firefighters in a, in a different way than I think you might ordinarily write uh, about them, as, a, as we've said, in a journal. Um, has that created, uh, have you gotten feedback from other people in, psycho- in the psychological field saying, you know, this is a, a very interesting take you've got on the firefighters or that they, they disagree with the writing of it or agree strongly with the writing of it? Well, actually, I, in terms of the ideas, um, the use of firefighters as a national hero, I've actually published two or three of more papers on the subject. And I think within the field, they found it very interesting, in part because it's my particular orientation as a psychoanalyst that studies the culture, brings a perspective, a cultural perspective to understanding individuals. So it's been respected. And in terms of bringing our work to the public, there's been tremendous support for that. Therapists really want the world to understand what we do. One of the things that really drove me and guided me through this was trying to show not only firefighters as real people, but trying to show therapists, patients, and what happens in the therapy interaction beyond the images that you usually see, beyond kind of caricatures. So the field has been actually tremendously behind it. I got a grant in part to support this work. Do you um, not to get too into your your own work, but has how has this changed you? I guess when you're in your therapy sessions with uh, with people, you describe yourself at the beginning as maybe becoming a little jaded with uh, therapy. Um, you had just published a paper that didn't get many comments, um, and you were sort of questioning. It seems like at the beginning of the book, uh, some of the things that you were doing is that something that's changed for you and the writing of this book has changed that for you? The, the writing of the book, I think, has changed me in certain ways, in a way that I have just come to, but both the writing of the book and the actuality of doing this work has just helped me. I can't say it's changed me. I'm the same person, but it's helped me appreciate much more deeply how helping one person helps the world. Changing one person, they say, changes the world. And I was so used to just working with one, you know, person at a time or a couple or a group and not really quite seeing the ripple effect. And my experience, one of the things that I really learned through this experience is that the bonds that you form in this kind of work and going through a disaster, they last a lifetime. When I go and I see these men, I may not see them for six months or a year. 
And we go every year on September 11th to a memorial service and then to a bar. And it's as though we pick up right off where we left off. And in some way, that's that I, I've certainly had that experience with people I work with. I think it's just, in a way, helped bring me back into my work in a way that I can uh, appreciate it even more strongly. Okay. Well, Elizabeth Gore and I thank you very much for talking to us today about your book, Beyond the Reach of Ladders, My Story as a Therapist, Forging Bonds with Firefighters in the Aftermath of 9-11. I really appreciate your insights into this. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. That was Elizabeth Gorin. For more information about our guests, visit the links at writerstalk.org. Now, guest interviewer Nicole Kraft talks to Emmy Award-winning journalist and author of Muzzled, The Assault on Honest Debate, Juan Williams. I'm going to start at the, at the beginning of, of where this story begins, I think. And you know, for all your accomplishments and for as many um, important places as you've worked, the Washington Post and, and the work that you've had, uh, you're best known now for the firing at NPR. And I was wondering how you feel about that. Sort of sad. I mean, it's deeply ironic to me that, you know, you, I think this is my seventh book that I've written. But, you know, I've had, I mean, I've been a columnist for the Washington Post, the White House correspondent. I've been the host of Crossfire on CNN. I, you know, I don't even know <laughs> how deeply ironic uh, I can express this feeling. It's just, it's just crazy to me that something out of my power, out of my ambit has brought that this much attention to me. But uh, I think the world is drawn to drama and often to negativity. And uh, there certainly was a lot of drama and negativity and hurt attached to this event. What was your goal in writing this book? Well, I think the conversation in the country is just paralyzed, frozen. It's hard to have an honest discussion. Uh, There's so much in the way of unstated speech codes, political correctness, if you will, at play. And I think it's become worse in the last few years. Uh, Politicians right now, as we recently saw in the debt ceiling debate, can't have an honest debate. The, the, the rewards for politicians are for the most extreme, alarmist, demonizing of statements. Um, the politicians who say the most horrific things about their opponents or the most alarmist things about circumstances are the ones who get support from their political base. They're the ones who get the money in, uh, thrown into their campaign coffers. As uh, you know, uh, Congresswoman Giffords of Arizona said before she was shot, people who are trying to reach reasonable conclusions who are trying to negotiate, people who are trying to compromise on an issue, trying to understand an issue, trying to hear what the other side has to say uh, with a certain respect for the other's position, uh, that the rewards all go to the most extremist politicians. And I think that's absolutely true at the moment. And you see it reinforced by the lobbying groups, even by the best of the advocacy groups. Everybody has to adhere to their language and the way they want their topic talked about. And if you vary at all, you're a bad person. Uh, If you talk about someone who is retarded as anything but mentally disadvantaged, suddenly you are a bad person. You're not supposed to say it that way. Um, And of course, if you dare to get involved with an issue like terrorism, where 
I stepped into it by saying that as I get on airplanes, I if I see someone who's dressed in Muslim garb, and to my mind, first and foremost, identifying themselves as Muslim, uh, then I get nervous. Just for saying that, uh, I'm called a bigot and you know, tossed out the door, fired by NPR after a 10-year career. You dedicate the first chapter of your book to your firing uh, by NPR, and you say that you're looking to set the record straight there. What is it that you really want us to know about that? Well, I think it's the kind of, again, you know, talking about the difficulty with having an honest debate, it's the difficulty in the media universe. I just talked to you about what goes on in terms of politics, lobbying, advocacy, uh, how people put constraints on the way that we talk and the willingness to hear the other side. Um, but even in media, it's true. And I think the, the background to this is that there was such a feeling among some NPR executives, particularly the one who fired me, that I should not be talking to conservatives, that I should not appear on the Fox News channel and do uh, debates with Bill O'Reilly or Sean Hannity, that this somehow corrupted uh, the essence of journalism for me to be engaged in debate with people who are partisan personalities on the ear. Uh, to them, this is illegitimate and not to be allowed. And I think that really is the background for why they decided that my statement about Muslims taken out of context and totally ignoring that I was standing up for religious liberty and standing up for the rights of Muslim Americans, they took they, they ignored all that and instead went willy-nilly wild you know, with this out-of-context statement, in part because an advocacy group, the Council for American-Islamic Relations Care, uh, also was angry, I think, at me uh, for having lent any support to Bill O'Reilly uh, in course of a debate. And so all of a sudden you see advocacy groups, media groups, political groups gaining steam, and you can't say what's on your mind. It, it's impossible to have an honest discussion. So that's why that first chapter really... You know, people might say, well, he's writing about being fired from NPR. No, not at all. Writing about how difficult it is to simply speak your mind in this country today. To some people, you would be considered a bit of an anomaly. I mean, although you are considered to be a liberal, you support, you've expressed support for Ron Paul uh, during the Clarence Thomas hearings. You were said to support Clarence Thomas. I, I was looking on your Facebook page, and, and someone said that you were, and I'm quoting her, so far left that he cannot see the middle if he tried. So I, I guess I have to ask you, who really is Juan Williams? Gosh, I, I, <laughs> I'm such a public person. I don't think there's any secret. I mean, if you ask me about my opinions, I'll tell you, but... You know, I think that what you're seeing there in terms of, you know, Facebook responses and all the rest is people want to put someone like me in a box. They want to say, are you with us or against us? Are you a liberal or not? Are you a conservative or not? And I wasn't trained that way. I was trained to be a professional journalist. I mean, I started my career uh, even in, you know, as an editor of my junior high school and high school papers, but then later professionally at the Philadelphia paper, the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin while I was in college and then at the Washington Post for 23 years. So I didn't come up as a radio or TV personality that fit into one easily identifiable slot as a liberal or conservative. I really try to tell people what I think is going on and what I see. So if you, if, if you ask me about Ron Paul, for example, I will say Ron Paul has some outlandish ideas, but at the same time, isn't it interesting how this has become the age of Ron Paul in so many ways from tea parties to arguments about drug legalization to criticism of the Federal Reserve. Those are Ron Paul's issues, and, and even in terms of anger over foreign interventions in Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, 
these, you know, the, the popular sentiment has flowed towards a lot of positions that Ron Paul took early. Or you mentioned Clarence Thomas. I had written extensively about Clarence Thomas before he became a household name in the famous Anita Hill hearings. So I had some knowledge of who this character really was. And the kind of caricatures of Clarence Thomas I thought were just offensive. And I was willing to say that out loud. It wasn't a matter of whether I agree or disagree with his judicial opinions or his politics. It was a matter of being fair to Clarence Thomas. So when you ask me, who is Juan Williams? I'm thinking, well, I'm a journalist. I get out there and I look around. I talk to people. I do research and reporting. And then I'll tell you what I found. I don't... I don't uh, trim my findings to conform to a pre-existing political position, I just tell you honestly what I'm thinking, and I'm willing to hear what you think and to discuss it with you. It seems in a lot of cases recently, from a a media standpoint, that people are looking more to have their views um, validated as opposed to actually be informed, though. So does that change how you approach, or, or in terms of someone who has been trained as a journalist whose job is to present all sides of the issues, how does that affect how you do your job now? Well, it, it doesn't. And I think that's what makes me the anomaly that you described earlier. I think that clearly what we're seeing in this niche media environment is that there's an audience that will go to a host or a program that affirms pre-existing opinions and attitudes so that people can, you know, wham their hand on the dashboard and say, I'm glad this guy's telling them like it is. This is what I think, you know, and sort of that kind of cranky, angry moment that people have or they find a TV show or a program uh, that, again, just reaffirms what they were thinking. And it's, you know, people go on the Internet to sites that, again, reaffirm their thinking because everybody who is of like mind is gathered at that website. And then, of course, if anybody even has a point of difference, they're told they're not fully uh, conservative or fully liberal, and they're called a traitor or a a rhino, a Republican in name only, or a dino, a Democrat in name only. Why are you talking to the other side? Why are you open to them? So that kind of mentality is what I think leads people then to think, oh, no, we've got to have our media personalities in one box or another, and that's the very box that I'm fighting to get out of because I don't want to be in one box or another. I think the reason I was able to work at NPR and Fox News for 10 years simultaneously is that I had value to both audiences. Both audiences understood that I wasn't playing that game with them. Now, I will say that when you play that game, you know, you can get rich. I mean, you know, so many of the media personalities, I think that's why we have this environment. Understand the audiences are there. Audiences will come back. You can count on an audience coming back to have their opinions reaffirmed, that to being outraged at the other side and demonizing the other side and making fun of the other side. Uh, this is the Rush Limbaugh phenomenon, and he's the highest paid radio personality in history. But does it help us to have an honest conversation? I think people also are aware that it doesn't, and that when you see the politics of our day fall into such disgrace, people have such a low opinion of our politicians today because they say these people aren't serious. They're, they're not about discussing real ideas, substantive solutions to problems and helping our country. They're not putting country first. I think Americans are beginning to realize that in greater numbers. 
you know, here at Ohio State, we are in the business of training future journalists. Based on your experiences, both uh, your, your print experiences early in your career and as you've moved into um, this television aspect of your life, what are the things that we can teach our students that you'd like for them to know as they move off into careers that they certainly hope come close to mirroring yours? Well, I think that the key here is to be a good journalist. Again, so many young people, especially when I run into them at journalism schools, are all about the glitter. Uh, they all want to be anchor men, anchor women, or host, and they, I think, see that as sort of the pot of gold at the end of the journalism school experience. But in fact, if they learn how to think critically, how to write well, I think that there is a tremendous pot of gold also available to them, and it's one that is long-lasting, that they will have a long career that can fit in the various platforms that are being generated by new technologies and new possibilities about the way that we combine media in America and the world today. So to my mind, it's not about the anchor chair or the host chair. It's really about first and foremost being good writers, good reporters, and good thinkers and bringing something different to the table in terms of language skills or economic knowledge this is really what will set a journalist apart, I think, going forward. The audience is craving someone they can trust. And the audience, no matter how partisan, understands that there's a large entertainment factor in what they're getting at the moment. And I think the pendulum will swing backwards and that the journalist, uh, the people involved in media who are going to do the best are people who are trained as journalists and who know how to research, know how to report, know how to write, know how to communicate effectively on screen. So those are the, those are the characteristics that I think that, that you would benefit from teaching people at Ohio State. Well, Juan Williams, we can't thank you enough for joining us here on Writer's Talk, and we wish you the best of luck with your book. Well, thanks. I hope that you guys all go out and buy a copy of Muzzle. You can count on it. <laughs> thank you. You've been listening to Writers Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University with our guests Elizabeth Gorin and Juan Williams. For more information about our guests, visit www.writerstalk.org. Join us next time as we talk to Lev Grossman, senior writer and book critic for Time Magazine. Until then, this is Brendan Telerik. Keep writing.